0: to believe that The world could to be changed true. by just one lie.
1: This is Steve Donahue with another episode of Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number two hundred and fifty-four, and this will be an exposition of first John chapter two, beginning in verse three and continuing through verse eleven. And if you'd like to get additional information about that passage or any additional information about the website or the podcast itself, check out the legacypodcast.com and episode number two hundred and fifty-four. Thanks for listening. There has always been a great deal of tension in the Middle East and uh, we cannot turn on our television We cannot look into the newspapers or the news magazines or look on the internet in any way without understanding that There is still a great deal of tension in the Middle East and different people have had different positions as to what we should do there and I'm not going to necessarily uh, talk about that so much as I will say that um, because we have had different views, I remember one time when my family was traveling, as we often did in the summertime uh, when we were young. And it was right around the time of the Iran-Contra deals, you know that, uh, if you remember, under Reagan. And um, there was a great deal of conflict in the Middle East then, as there was now. And uh, my my brother, uh, who is two years older than me, uh, thought that he knew what should be done in the Middle East. And his position was this. And, of course, I know that he would, he, he would uh, recant of this now, and he would certainly not hold to this position any longer. Uh, but at the time, this is what he said, and it caused a great deal of discussion in our car as we would travel around beyond this. But my dad said, so what do you think you should do, Mike? And he says, send the nukes. Just bomb them all. Just totally annihilate the whole place. That'll settle it. And, of course, uh, he he would not have that position now. And when we look at it, we, we think to ourselves, could anybody possibly have that kind of animosity toward anybody? That we would just say, nuke them all, destroy them all. And we think, well, certainly not Christians. Certainly not disciples of Christ. Certainly not somebody who is intimately acquainted with Jesus. And yet I want us to understand From Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, we're not going to preach on this, although uh, I do want to use it as an illustration to demonstrate uh, the context of this letter that uh, John is writing here. And the context uh, has to come from Luke chapter 9. And the incident is this Jesus had uh, been aware that he is going to be crucified in Jerusalem, and he is setting his mind. To Jerusalem. He sets his face to Jerusalem, as it says in Luke chapter 9. And on his way down there, it says he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. That is, the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set for journey to Jerusalem. And then in verse 54 of chapter 9 of Luke, it says this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and destroy them all? Well, doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like what my brother's response was to the Iraqis of the day. Do you want us to just blow them all away? Send down fire from heaven? Now, is that a response of love? And yet I find it very interesting that when we read the gospel of John, and when we read the first letter of John, in fact, the second and third letters of John, one of the favorite words that Jesus or that John uses is the word love. What was the difference? The difference is he had been changed. And so when we, when we read this letter about what he is requiring of followers of Christ, we have to understand it in the context of a changed life. Because we will not understand it otherwise. And so, uh, we have seen already in John's, God, in John's letter here, that uh, he is giving us a basis for fellowship with Christ. And that is, uh, he writes to the to the, the Christians and he says, if you want to be assured that you have fellowship with Christ, if you want to be assured of your of your salvation, uh, there are certain things that must be apparent in your life. And we looked last week at uh, the understanding of who Jesus is and his walk upon the earth and who he is as our intercessor and our propitiation. Um, and then also. Um, we looked at sin and the proper understanding of what sin is and uh, the solution to it in Christ. This week, we'll look at two more conditions that he says must be a part of a Christian's life if they are going to have assurance of their fellowship with God. And the first one is this. Those who have fellowship with God, obey him, obey him. We see this in verses three through six. Of Chapter two, it says in verse three, now, by this, we know that we know him. Isn't that an interesting question? Have you ever had anybody approach you and say, how do you know that you know God? Good question, isn't it? And so what does he have here? He says, he asked that same question. How do you know that you know God? Well, in our day, it's all about feelings. You'll hear somebody say, "Oh, I went to that service and I was moved. You could tell the spirit was at work there." Now, usually, what that means is that they played some really good music, and they left emotionally high. That's usually what it means. Or you talk to somebody and, and they say, uh, "You know, I just I really believe that God spoke to me and told me to do X." And when you get right down to it, you ask them, well, "What did, did God's voice say?" I mean, what did it sound like? It comes down to them thinking, well, I had this feeling that I was supposed to do such and such, and I'm attributing it to God. And so the the question has to ask is how do we know? Is it based upon feelings? If one day we wake up and, and we have a feeling that we are very intimate with God, does that mean that we are? And the next day when we wake up, we feel very distant from God, does that mean that we are? How do we know? That we have fellowship with God. Listen to what it says. It says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Isn't that interesting? He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, the form of the verb here, if we keep his commandments, is a present tense verb, which usually uh, means that it is a continuous action. In other words, the one who continually keeps the commandments of God can be assured that they know who God is. Now, we're not talking here about salvation by works. That would be in contradiction to everything else that the scriptures teach us. But what does it do, does teach us is that when we exercise faith in Christ, that faith is not alone. It's not a faith distant from works. It is a faith that demonstrates itself through works. I like the way John MacArthur says it. He says, this is the objective test. Obedience is the external visible proof of salvation. How do we know that somebody is in fellowship with God? We can't read their mind. We don't know their heart. So how are we supposed to understand it? We know that they are in fellowship with God when they keep his commandments. The same thing is true for us. And it's not so much as though we are without sin because the Bible just said earlier in the previous chapter, there's no one who says that they're without sin. And if we say that we're without sin, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so what is he getting at here? Well, it is the idea of a struggle. We have a different attitude, a different relationship toward the law of God. Our fellowship is broken when we disobey, not because of him, but because of us. Because we know him, we know that what he commands is the best for us. How can we know the character of God and think that he would do anything other than what is good for us or command anything other than what is good for us? Because we know him, we want to please him. It is the natural response to someone who loved us and died for us that we would want to then uh, show our uh, love for him by obeying him. We do not obey him so that we can know him, but because we know him, we obey him. You cannot say that you know him and live contrary to his will. That's what it says in verse four. In verse five, it says this, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. The word perfected here carries the idea of a continuous Results something that happened in the past we knew him and so because we know him we continually abide in him The idea of this verse is that it seems to be that the purpose of the law among other things is to lead us to christ and to cleanse us From our sin How do we know sin apart from the commands of god? We don't The bible says that we knew sin because of the law and the law put us to death it brought us to Christ and so we are made perfect through Christ as we understand the depths of our sin in the law. This sin then leads us to the Savior who in turn in turn will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 6 then it says he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. There needs to be a similarity between the way that we are followers of Christ and the way in which he himself Lived. Now I want you to imagine it for a moment in this way. Imagine you're talking to somebody and they say that they are uh, they're real fans of the Redskins. In fact, they follow the Redskins. And you say, oh, well, that's great. And I don't know whether you like a Redskins fan or not, what, or but let's suppose for a moment they're a Redskins fan and, and they follow the Redskins. You say, oh, really? Well, did you see the last game? Oh, no, I don't watch any of their games. Well, what would you think of somebody like that? to say they're a follower of the Redskins, but they never watch any of their games. Well, that's how it is if you say you're a Christian, but you never follow any of the commands of God. How can you say you're a Christian if you don't want to follow him? It doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I think that's what he is communicating here in this letter. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. So are you being obedient? You know, there's half-heart obedience and there's whole-heart obedience. Whole-heart obedience is doing the right thing with the right heart. And, you know, we we see this sometimes with our children, or at least I'm sure you did uh, with your children. Uh, My children are perfect, so I don't ever see that with mine. But, um, Lee, I'm sure you see it with your kids, right? (laughs) That, that there is there is this uh, there there are two aspects to obedience. There's doing the right thing and doing the right hearted thing. And sometimes they, they can be in opposition. If you remember biblically the perspective of Uzzah, if you remember Uzzah from the Old Testament, they wanted to move the ark. And so God had given them clear direction on how they are to move the ark. He gave them uh, hoops and that those, through those hoops, poles were supposed to be put through so that they carry the ark uh, from these, these poles and never touch the ark. Because if they touched the ark, they were to die, right? Well, uh, David put the ark on a cart and he wanted to move the ark, which was a good thing. And, and because they did not want to touch the ark, they, they put it on to a cart, which their motivation was right. But then as the cart begins to move, they go across this rough ground and it starts to shake. And you remember what Uzzah is, does? Uzzah puts out his hand to set in the ark, and he touches it. And what does God do? Strikes him dead. Why? He had the right heart, but he did the wrong thing. And so obedience requires the right heart and the right activity. And so you can also. Do the right thing, but not with the right heart. Now, you know, my children demonstrate this sometimes when, you know, their their mother may call them to come pick up the room or something. And you hear from the other room, just a minute. Or hold on a second. Right. Uh, Or or even worse. "Mm Oh. I don't want to clean up my room. Is that really obedience? Even if they later on go and do it, it's not really obedience because their attitude is not right. And so when we look at obeying God, we can look at it from the same perspective. We have to do what he says and we have to do it with the right heart. Otherwise, it's not really obedience. So what then is the key? Because the reality is none of us really obey God, do we? Because even in our perspective of obeying God, even in our effort to try to obey God, there is that mixture of error. where we may be doing it for the wrong motivation. We may be doing it with the wrong attitude or we may be going about it half-heartedly to where we don't really fulfill all that is required. and We don't really consider what we're doing. I have a, a confession to make. I've mentioned this. In times past, but um, my, my wife I rarely do the dishes, okay but when I do the dishes, I make a mess, and um, i, I 'm not very considerate when it comes to doing the dishes. I kind of do them half heartedly. One of the things that I do is uh, i 'll do the easy stuff, and then i 'll leave the pots and pans out for her. <laughs> Not, not the best thing to do But the other thing is I always splash water up behind it Well I was just noticing today When I was wetting down my hair this morning In the sink I splattered water everywhere All over the mirror and all over the sink And I thought to myself you know that's just pathetic <laughs> But that, that's the way we do in our, in our efforts Don't we I mean you know we just We can't help it We're, we're sinners And yet even in that we are trying And that's, that's the key The key is that we should have a heart for obeying God because he's given us a new heart. So we can't expect perfection. The reality is none of us really obey. Hopefully we are growing in our obedience. But earlier in the chapter, we are told that if we have no sin, we lie. So we must understand that this is not being absolute, but in some other way. Even our best attempt at obedience is mixed with errors, actions, and attitudes. It's also not the other perspective of carelessness. That is, uh, Paul addresses this when he says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. In other words, we can't look at it and say, Well, it's hopeless. It's impossible for me to obey because of the the sinful nature that is still creeping up in my life, and so I just won't even attempt it. That's not the perspective either, is it? So, what are we to do? It's a struggle. There should be a fight within us. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 7. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good. I do not find for the good that I will to do. I do not do, but the evil I will to do that. I practice now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What's he saying there? He's saying that until our day of perfection, when we are glorified with Christ, there will be this constant struggle between a desire to obey God, a willingness and and an inner desire to serve God, and yet because of the sinful nature that still is within us to some extent, there will be a struggle. The things that we desire to do, we don't do all the way, and sometimes we don't even do them. And the things that we don't want to do, we slip up and do. And so that is the way in which we are to look at serving God and obeying Him. And so we go back to the question. How do we know that we know Him? We keep His commandments. But how can we keep His commandments? And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there a struggle? If there's no struggle in your life. Ch- Chances are you're either perfect, which <laughs> you're not, or you, you've never really been changed. You have never really been saved because there should be a struggle. There should be a constant battle where you're you're desiring to obey God. And yet, even in your desire to obey God, you don't quite do it. <clears throat> so if you are in that struggle, ask God to help you to obey in action and in attitude. Secondly in verses 7 through 11 we notice those who have fellowship with God love others Those who have fellowship with God love others We see this also in verses 3 through 6 he talks about the commandments of the Lord And in verses 7 through 11 he talks about the commandment of the Lord So what is the commandment? It is the law of love Jesus said it this way in John chapter 13 verse 34 he says a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Love is one of John's favorite themes both in this letter as well as in the gospel. Love summarizes the whole law Matthew chapter 22 verses 36 36 through 40 says this teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love for God summarizes the first four commandments. And love for others summarizes the last six commandments. And so verses 7 through 8, he states this in a positive way. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now he talks here about a new commandment. And I think this has to be understood in the context of what he's talking about with the old commandment. It's not new in the sense of something being chronologically new in the sense of being... Never before spoken about. How could that be when he talks about it being an old commandment? It doesn't make any sense. And so I think we have to understand this and the word can be used in the way of understanding refreshed or renewed. And so it's not something that is brand new, but it's something that has been renewed. It has been refreshed. The commandment to love was new or refreshed in that it was personified and demonstrated perfectly in Christ and given new empowerment at the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it talks about the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it tells us that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And he raised it to a higher standard in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, which we haven't got to yet, but we will. It says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, as we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John 13, verse 34, I've quoted already, but it says a new commandment. I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. No greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for a friend. And he laid down his life, not for a friend, but for enemies. It says that we were before we came to him. And so that gives us a refreshing idea, a new idea of what love is to be like just like he does many times in the scriptures. He takes something that was in the Old Testament and he gives it deeper, stronger sense of meaning. That's what he did with the, with the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, you shall not look at a woman to lust for her. You have heard, you shall not commit adultery or you should not uh, commit murder. But I say to you. Whoever is angry with his brother. And so he's, he's giving a refreshing meaning. A new meaning to the concept of it. And he does that here through his fulfillment. But it's an old commandment. It's not something that is brand new. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says this. You shall not take vengeance. Nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. And with all your heart. Your strength and so it says here that this is a commandment which you have heard from the beginning this refers to the beginning of their Christian life this is not something novel or new something that uh, he is just introducing to them now it's something that has been around from the earliest times and in fact we know from the very beginning that uh, this has been true for us in fact before we were even Christians the whole concept is that we are to love one another brotherly love and even non-Christians. Although they distort what it means to love, they will say that the strongest commandment is to love one another. Sometimes I think we get caught up so much in trying to do something new and novel. And uh, this can be a great disservice because what ends up happening is that we look at obscure passages and we try to find some new or special meaning in those obscure passages. When I think the reality is if we keep the plain things the main things were okay. And what is one of the plainest things in all of the scriptures? We're to love one another. And so it's nothing new. It's something that we have learned from the very beginning. I believe that part of what is going on here is John is addressing some of the false teachers who were claiming to bring something new. There has been and there always will be this obsession with a new thing. Paul encountered that in the Areopagus. If you remember when he was preaching in the Areopagus and it says that the philosophers came and they had no desire other than to hear something new every day. <laughs> and, you know, in our culture, we have this infatuation with something that is new. This is why uh, young people will stand in line at, uh, at stores like Best Buy and things like that when the new iPhone comes out. And you'll see them stand in line for 24 hours waiting so that they can get the new iPhone because it has two new apps or a little bit faster speed. Or it's got a, you know, a bigger screen display or higher resolutions or something. We're infatuated with that which is new. And each generation is wanting to create their own new music, their new clothing, their new culture, their new language. You know, if you look at a picture uh, of 150 years ago, um, and usually the way it is is that you have the man there, the father, and you have the son. And he's dressed just like his father, only in smaller clothes. Nowadays, is that the case? Nope. You've got each generation with their own clothing. Why? Because theirs is better. It's newer. It's a different style. And we are infatuated with that which is new. And yet the scriptures goes back to the idea that um, new is not necessarily what is important. Yes, he refreshes the concept of what is old. But the commandment has then been there from the beginning. That is to love one another And so in verse eight, it says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The Old Testament, the commandment was only visible in shadows and types, but with Christ. And when he came, the light of the commandment to love was personified and fulfilled and expressed fully and completely in him. His love is the basis for our love. And so what does it say in John chapter 3, verse 16? We all have it quoted, I'm sure. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so how is his love? His love is demonstrated through giving and sacrifice. I've already said it, but no greater love has anyone than what? To lay down his life for his friend. And yet we were enemies when he laid down his life for us. We are loved, the Bible says, our wives as Christ loved the church, that's the model that is given for us. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, it says a new commandment. I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. He is the basis. He is the fulfillment of what love is like. And so when we look at him, we can see what love is like. That's how he refreshes. It, it is a new concept in that sense. And then in verses nine through 11, he looks at it from a negative standpoint. In other words, talks about what it is not. Verse 9, it says, he who says that he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. This is those who are deceived, professing to be in the light, but hating his brother. They're really in darkness. They talk a big game, but their actions do not follow. Verse 10 talks about the disciples. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. I think it's interesting how he has this wordplay here. It talks about in the dark. Not stumbling versus you know in the light when they they don't stumble in their light when they're in the darkness they don't know where they're going that's what he says here in verse eleven but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not where know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes this speaks about the depravity of man and so the question is how is your love are you holding a grudge against somebody are you unwilling to forgive someone Are you showing any prejudice towards someone? Are you lacking compassion, empathy, or care for someone? What did Jesus say in John chapter 13, verse 35? He says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Brethren, let us love one another, for love is of God. So let me summarize, and I'll bring it to a close. We've got the Lord's Supper this evening. If you do not obey God, or this afternoon, if you do not obey God, how can you say that you are in fellowship with him? You can't. And so we have to obey him. That, that, is, that is how we have our assurance of being in fellowship with him when we obey him. And secondly, if you do not love others, how can you say that you are in fellowship with him? You cannot hold a grudge, you cannot hate your brother, you cannot be unwilling to forgive your brother and still say that you are in fellowship with God. It's uncharacteristic it's of being a follower of Christ. Start Let's pray for our
0: nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash? Between your birth and death, what will you do to change your legacy? To say goodbye But just like the plant That withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash Between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?